We're continuing in the book of James. We're in James chapter 2, and I'm going to just read the scripture and then get into our message. We still have communion in our worship tonight, and I hope that this message will prepare our hearts somewhat for communion. Just before I read this passage, I want you to just have this one little piece of context that we've pulled out of James so far, and that is that one of the main concerns in the book is bad religion, is the problem of bad religion, fake religion. The meme of the day these days is fake news, right? Have you heard that one? Well, fake religion is the problem that James is dealing with, and he's giving us examples of good and authentic religion. So with that just general background, listen to James 2, starting in 14, going on to 26. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you don't have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? Faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from your works. And I, by my works, will show you my faith. Oh, you believe that God is one. Well, that's good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, O senseless person, that faith apart from works is barren? Was not our ancestor Abraham justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, And faith was brought to completion by the works. Thus the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Likewise, was not Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she welcomed the messengers and then sent them out by another road? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. Now, on hearing that scripture, do any of you have a problem with this? Good. I saw some heads say no. Oh, so there's a Protestant in the room. (laughs) I see. Yes, there are some problems here. PFP, problems for Protestants. Because, of course, the Protestant religion has been built on the use of the word alone. Christ alone, grace alone, by faith alone. And here, of course, a direct contradiction from the Bible. So this sets up a a little bit of a problem. And uh, you know, as we mentioned last time, that historically it is true that Martin Luther, the one who gave us all these sola, Latin for alone, passages, was not happy with the book of James. I don't even know if he ever preached from the book of James. I do know the lore is that he wanted to remove it from the canon and did not think it was a canonical book because, well, it contradicted him. So, nevertheless, on the other hand, many, many scholars have accepted that the James who wrote this is none other than the brother of Jesus Christ, the James who heads the church in Jerusalem at the 
time of, of Christ, and that this James is none other than the brother, son of Mary, James, son of Mary, brother of Jesus, son of Mary and Joseph. So that scandalizes other parts of the Christian tradition to think about. But it is interesting, in talking with you, Doug, yesterday, about uh, when you think about James writing this, uh, someone who would have grown up with Jesus, known Jesus in a very different way, as the character, known the character of the person before he went into his ministry, which shocked everybody, right? Shocked his own family. His own family thought he was crazy for a while. But before he was in ministry, when he worked with his father as a carpenter, when he was within the village growing up, this is a person who knew him. And it's extremely interesting to me that the person who would have grown up with Jesus gives us almost zero doctrine and writes a book completely about deeds, character, action, life as we should live it in community. So that's just a preamble. And when I say that there is a a potential problem here. The other one is this. The, the, the book was written to Jewish Christians who had a very deep commitment to ritual, traditional law that was given through Moses and also the moral law and the requirements of the moral law in their religion. And James has all but said, you're to live by one new law, the royal law, the law of liberty, the law of love, which is to love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the one. He said in the previous chapter, as we mentioned, live as people who will be judged one day. But judgment day is this. It's about how you loved, not a list of moral do's and don'ts that you're being graded by. But how much did you love? Let that be how we run our lives. Okay, with that in the background, and with the idea that real religion, as opposed to fake religion or dead religion, is the concern and let me just point out some factors here about this passage and why this is actually not a problem for Protestants, but should be good news. Works and faith, the relationship of works and faith. I just want to remind you that this opinion here by James is not the only place you're going to find this in Scripture. The most astounding place uh, where faith is spoken about as connected to action is none other than 1 Corinthians 13, the passage that probably next to John 3.16 led me to become an evangelical Christian. And I would still say, don't just wait for weddings to read Song of Solomon in 1 Corinthians 13. Like, go back and read the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Because, not only because it's a beautiful, beautiful piece of writing, but because of the content of what St. Paul, the Protestant apostle, not Peter, what St. Paul taught about the importance of love, that this entire religion is about love. And he contrasts in chapter 13 every possible religious activity. If I could do miracles, if I had infinite wisdom, if I could speak in all the tongues in all the universe, if I, even, if I was so charitable that I gave away everything and my body, gave my body up to be burnt, if I did all these religious things but didn't have love, I have nothing. And we have to hear that again. He's putting every other human religious activity on one side and saying it doesn't mean anything if it isn't all about framing and offering love which is what God is and what God wants from us. 
It's a very simple simplicity of this. Then I mentioned last week, Paul spanking a church full of theology, the Galatian church, where he is correct. In fact, that's the Lutheran book, the Galatian book. If Romans and Galatians were not in the Bible, there would be no Protestants. Just read the history of Martin Luther. Galatians, there he's talking also about bad religion. People who have begun by receiving the freedom of the gospel of grace and then they've fallen back into a religious bondage and superstition of traditions that put them back into bondage. And he, at the end of the day, in that passage, in in chapter 6 of Galatians, he says, none of the religious activities, whether you're eating kosher food or not eating kosher food, whether you're keeping certain holidays or not, whether you care about haircuts and tattoos and all that stuff, none of that matters. What matters is faith working through love. There he phrases it. Faith working, doing something in love. That's all that matters. So he's, he's done this, the only thing that matters thing again that he did in, in um, Corinthians. And it's in that spirit that James is not out of line with Paul when he talks about works because he doesn't disconnect them from faith. But he says that faith is not an end in itself. Faith has a purpose. As he says with Abraham, he says, faith was active and working alongside his works. And then faith was brought to completion or faith was made perfect. It was, its fruit was finally borne by the works. The purpose of faith is transformation. The, trans, the transformation of us. Now I can go into where Protestantism has put its spin on this and where Catholic and Orthodox have put another spin on it, or an emphasis on it. But the point is that we are being, we are the handiwork of God. We are being transformed by God. However slowly you think the transformation may be happening in your own life, or if you're me, how far back you can slide and still feel that you're even a Christian. But the point of the faith is, to be transformed. And so it will register in some kind of work. Even if that work is that you end up on your knees confessing you have no works and that you lament over that, that's a work of authenticity, of confession, of our own helplessness. But to put it in context now, I want to give you two examples that are here in James, one a little more implicit and one explicit of what bad faith looks like, bad religion looks like. And one of them is this feeling of faith. Now, it has two, it's two aspects to it. There's the emotional working yourself up into feeling lovey-dovey about God, and usually romantic love songs with Jesus written all over them help us. So we're talking about faith here as a mood swing, being created by group manipulation. This is very much also an activity of religion. And, and I'd like to say that having emotional feelings, romantic feelings about Jesus, is not bad. It's not a bad thing. But again, the question is, is it not ushering in works of love, in transformation? Then it's a little religious wank is what it is. It's a kind of behavior, it's an avoidance behavior of the real important thing, 
which is the transformation. So we can go to a church and we can be worked up into a great emotional state and feel really great and then leave again. And it's just what he says. Like looking in a mirror, you see what you look like in the mirror and then you walk away and you forget. Faith as emotional mood swing is of no value if it isn't connected into this transformation of works. There's another one, and this is a good spanking for those of you who have my disease, which is a a kind of an intellectual problem of uh, being deceived that thinking the right thoughts is what God wants. So salvation by doctrine, by correct doctrine, very much the Protestant disease. Here you have a set of objective propositions, monotheism, there is only one God, or well in three persons, but still one, but three, but one, but three, but one, and that's the correct thought. <laughs> not Jewish, not Muslim, three, one, but not so as to be a plural, three, but still one. That mystery, and, and whatever you think of that mystery, and you say, well, I'm saved because I believe God is one, three, three, one, <laughs> and that... The man, Jesus, is also God, the Son, second person of that trinity. Um, James is saying, if, if you have all those propositional beliefs correct, big deal. If they're true, the devil believes them too. The devil has, in fact, better theology than you, because the devil apparently drops in on God once in a while and has a little chat, and then says, Apunzu ich der Alter gern. You didn't know that? Okay. Uh, Sometimes I speak in tongues, or I should say tongue, (laughs) and it's only it's only not Hebrew. Well, that is correct doctrine is not believing in correct doctrine is not the kind of faith that saves. Here he says correct doctrines good. The devils have correct doctrines. What good does that do? If these things, if these truths you believe about God or these feelings you have about God have not connected into some kind of an action in your life, activity in your life, then it's at least this. It's useless. And he uses that phrase. And if it's useless, that tells us that there's a use for faith. It has a purpose. It isn't an end in itself. It isn't that we run around saying faith is so great. Isn't Isn't it great that we have faith? Isn't it great the world is full of multiple faiths? We should all get together and celebrate interfaith and multiple faith. What if you have faith in something that's wrong or evil? Or you have faith in something that's true and it makes no impact. It does zero in your life. This is bad religion. And he says, how can you be saved by this? Now usually when you get to this state, there's a set of questions that arise if you're like me. And these questions also lead to bad religion. Well, they're things like this. Well, then are you saying that um, I, I should be saved by doing good works? I'm saved then by good works? Is that what you're saying? I thought there's a lot of scripture that says exactly the opposite of that. That we in no way does our doing good put God in debt to us. That he owes us something, like a reward, let's say. And the reason is very simple. We should have been doing good all along anyway. We have no justification for doing evil. And so if we come along and say, I've stopped doing evil, then we've come to the neutral place. or we've gone from the red to broke, zero. We haven't earned anything. We haven't gone over and above the call of duty. We've stopped doing evil. 
Well, you don't give people a medal for no longer doing evil when they weren't supposed to do any in the first place. It's not impressive at all. Now, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, which we're going to talk about, not doing evil is the equivalent to not beating up people who are traveling on the road. Hey, we're going to give you a reward. You walk past a guy and you didn't beat him up and rob him today. Very good. We don't think like that. But we, we do look at someone who went out of their way to do a good that they didn't have to do. All right. If you start thinking about faith as feeling or faith as works, here's the question that wrecks your joy and destroys your religion and becomes bad religion. And this is something I went through for a long, long time. One was I was converted to a religion of emotion. And in which case, um, for a little while, I went up like a firework and exploded and had all kinds of religious experiences uh, for several months that were profound. And I do grant life-changing. I think there was a conversion experience there, though I don't think it had anything to do with whether I was going to heaven or hell, because con- what does conversion have to do with that? So, um, but then, then what happened was the honeymoon ended, as they say. Then... Uh, I remember being in a place where I no longer was full of such happy feelings about Jesus and began to sort of ask some questions which gave root to some doubts. And because I believed in salvation by faith, I was afraid that as I start to emotionally not feel so high anymore, that I'm in fact losing my faith. But I am, I'm losing my emotional faith. And then I asked the question, am I losing my salvation? And then I remember it got to the point where I had this really... Not, this really naughty, sinful dream. Feel that in your own naughty, <laughs> sinful dreams. For me, it was about shortchanging the paperboy. There was once a day when there were such things as paperboys, and you could shortchange them. Look that up. Wikipedia, it's about having... Yeah, it's another era. I was a paperboy once. I know the pain of such abuse. In any case, I had this dream, and then I asked the question... In my dream, I had no faith and I was sinning in my dream. If I die in my sleep when I'm having that dream, am I damned to hell? Because at that moment, I'm not in any psychological state of believing. And in my dream fantasy life, I'm doing bad things. So if my salvation is dependent upon being in some emotional state, some psychological state of believing, of faith, of being joyful in the Lord, that comes and goes, and especially in uncontrollable places like in your dream life. So I had these questions, and I raised these questions in a church I belonged to, and that I had people casting the spirits out of my questions. I had demons cast out of me for asking those questions, and on one Sunday, I had demons cast out of my leather jacket and my little Rastafarian button, my Rasta button. So I was very cleansed, and then I didn't go back to that church again. Um, But then when you think, ah, well, Works. The, the problem with works is this. Uh, how many works do you have to do to kind of start to be outstanding? You know, because like everybody does some good, right? I mean, there's good everywhere in people. So first of all, does, does my good work have to have like a Jesus label put on it? I'm doing this for Jesus. Whereas over there, someone who's living a thousand times better than I live, but is an atheist... Ah, their good works are nothing. But I have these little tiny ones, and, uh, but I do them for Jesus, so they count. 
Um, but how do you measure that? I mean, how do you even know that they're authentic when deep down my motivation might be really rotten? Um, and then the question is, yeah, but I crank out these little good deeds for Jesus, but over here I've got this really big pile of bad deeds for Rob. Right? And they aren't so easy to get rid of or to transform into Jesus' deeds. So you ask yourself, so if I do a bunch of these good ones for God, how many of these bad ones, do they cancel this out? Do I do a, you know, six days a week I do good deeds and then I do a Rob deed, a bad deed, does that cancel it out? Like murder, for instance. This is the, which occasionally I have done. I have been angry. I have fantasized. Um, so this raises questions of how many good deeds and does a bad deed cancel it out? And then I believe the doctrine of mortal sin. I commit one mortal sin. It cancels out all the grace attained by all the good deeds and have to run back and sacramentally be dosed up again with grace where if I die in that interim period, I go right to hell. Whereas at least I could have a billion years in purgatory if I died without mortal sin. These are the complicated questions, Pam. <laughs> now... I once uh, shared this neurosis with uh, an Anglican. You know, all of us on the evangelical journey bump into the Anglicans on the road. And the Anglicans go, no, 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 don't be afraid. I'm not Catholic. (laughs) Even though I sometimes look like that. Don't run away yet. Yes, I smell and I have bells. I'm a Morris dancer. No, I also have this building with stained glass. And so I am high church, but I'm not Catholic. I'm Anglican. So I'm kind of on your side, okay? But I have all kinds of things that you have thrown out. This is when you drain the bathtub and the baby went, oops, down the drain. That's us. Where's baby and bathwater together? In the tub in England somewhere. Far enough away from Italy, you see. Okay. And this Anglican said to me, what should evangelicals do whether you're worried about correct doctrine, worried about holy deeds, or worried about your emotions is, your eyes are always on yourself. You're looking to make sure your faith is strong enough, your Bible knowledge is accurate enough, your deeds are being offered in the Spirit, you're speaking in tongues. It's looking, it's measuring how I'm doing on the saved by faith alone game. And then he said, the problem there is you've turned your eyes from the cross to yourself. But if you turn away from self to the cross, then the question of do I believe enough about the cross doesn't arise. That's looking at yourself. The question, am I doing something in response to the cross? That's looking back at you. If you just look at the cross objectively, what's there? What's there is the sins of the world being taken away by God himself. What's on the cross is God loving the world so much that he taketh away the sins of the whole world. God is in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to himself, totally apart from you, because it happened before you were born, okay? So your mood swings and your actions and stuff are irrelevant to the event that happened on the cross which we don't understand, incidentally. We have metaphors and theologies that talk about it, and it's a mystery that we do not understand. That the issue of sin and death and evil is an issue that only God can resolve, and what is revealed to us is that God has resolved it. 
And he has resolved it because he loves his creation and intends to redeem it and is redeeming it. And all that stuff's objective to you. It was there before you believed it, and it's there now that you think you even understand it. The thing about that is you're not looking at self and you're not measuring faith as how much I believe and how correct doctrine I think, but you are actually just objectively looking to what God has done. I've sometimes phrased it this way, that the result of this is, the result of this whole teaching is something like this. Just get busy practicing and perfecting love and salvation will take care of itself. I have met whole other parts of the Christian movement that think that way. And they look at us and they say, you guys are neurotic. You are, you're neurotically obsessed with your salvation and worry about your salvation and you've got the list of who's in and who's out. It's all measured by whether they're going by your way of doing things. Whereas this other group, I used to think, really doesn't seem to care very much about their personal salvation. But they're just very busy being Christians in the world and being church for the sake of the world rather than church as the set of saved people, right? The world's all going to hell in a handbasket, and you pluck a few out supernaturally or by your evangelism, and you put them in the box called the ones getting saved or the ones that are saved, and that's the world, us and them, saved and lost. But the older Christian tradition is called out from among the world to be anointed by the Spirit of God for the sake of the world, that the church is in the world as God's agent for those who are not in the church yet. And that the thing isn't a box, let alone a box of who's predestined to be in there, but is part of a story, a process going on in the universe called redemption, salvation, of which Jesus warned many are going to be there that you didn't think were going to be there. Those of you who use religion as a criteria. So let me say this again. Just get busy worrying about love and salvation takes care of itself. That's the only way to read 1 Corinthians 13. If all the rest of the religious activity without love is nothing, then I should concentrate on love and not worry about, gee, do I have the right theology? Does my faith in God as, as being Christ in the flesh, do, do I feel the right things about that? Those two concerns, are my doctrines accurate and am I feeling and psychologically believing whatever that emotion even is? Is belief even an emotion? Those two things, but get busy just loving. Get busy doing the Christ-like thing and salvation takes care of itself. And I can hear this question arising immediately in me, incidentally. Um... But that means I'd have to actually, if, if I'm not worrying about my salvation, th- then I'm actually entrusting it to God. <laughs> I have to stop actually worrying and just kind of give up. In fact, you're asking me to kind of give up on religion and just trust that there's a God who's just going to save me because he's good, because I'm bad. I mean, how insecure is trust in God? I'd much rather have correct doctrine. 
Well, I'd much rather have strong emotional commitments to things un- that could never be challenged by things like facts. <laughs> well, that would mean this. That would mean that you mean I could have faith in Jesus while still wondering whether this religion is hogwash? Come on, people. Let's be honest here. Um, if, you're, if, you, if you're using a brain at all, you have to have had some time where you're thinking, how do I actually know I'm in the right religion? And, um, I mean, what if it isn't true? What if it isn't true? And then you have to say, what true? Religion, and so God is mad that you're in the wrong religion, or there's no God. That's another one. Christopher Hitchens used to say, look, there's no God. So, first thing we can all do is relax. Because you're just going to die a meaningless, pointless death in the universe. So relax, right? Uh, Whereas my feeling is, no, God is like Jesus Christ, so we can relax. (laughs) Because he's not like that which was sold by the religions to empower religions to be the oppressive institutions they've been throughout history. God isn't the old benevolent man who throws lightning bolts around and punishes just as badly as your dad did. No, if God is like Jesus, then the first thing you can do is relax. And the first thing you can also do is not know who Jesus was. Because his disciples didn't. The whole point in the Gospels is they didn't know who he was. They didn't get who he was during all this time. And they were the inner circle. They didn't have the right theology. And they were the inner circle. So the faith that matters can, can happen in your life even when you're wondering whether any of this is true. Why? Because you can still love. You can still choose to do good even if you have doubts about religion or theology or even whether you're connected to God rightly, whether you're saved. What does any of that have to do with your ability to be kind and gracious and loving and let theology and salvation take care of itself? It's bigger than you anyway. number of places I could go from here. I'm just looking at them and trying to be more respectful of time <laughs> than I have been in the past. You've all been very gracious with my 52 minute long sermons. <laughs> but I got that email that said, at 60 minutes we're leaving. <laughs> so let me recap. Um, bad religion in James. First of all, bad religion is talking a lot and not doing, number one. And the second thing is, out of the same mouth comes praises and curses, and this shall not be. You can't have a a well of water that's good fresh water one minute and then poison the next. What kind of well is that? So, and here he's speaking of Christian community. Christian community, the banter, the talk that happens in Christian community must not be a place of gossip, of slander, of backstabbing, of anger and division. And I have to say, I don't find that in the place. I have not found that in the place. And actually, I can say I, haven't, I didn't find that very much at Lambrick in many respects. I didn't find that, for instance... Um, in 
one part of the congregation talking necessarily about the other congregation. There's, there's talk, but when I was at Emmanuel, I had Emmanuel had a very strong, strong Chinese church. As a matter of fact, it's now about half and half. And I remember the area minister coming from Vancouver who could speak Chinese, and he would hang out with the two congregations because we had Mandarin language worship and English language worship. And he said uh, also, when I'm in the Vancouver bicultural churches, and then you get the communities alone, they talk about each other. They, they, they criticize each other. But he says, not this community. This community, we hear love and, and joy that we're together from the two parts. I feel that way about the place, community. And that's why I think uh, the, the true hospitality begins when you come into a place and you hear how people are talking. And you hear already there, are they saying the kinds of things that is excluding and harmful and hurtful? Would I feel safe here? But talking and reading. But then he says, it's not about feeling. It's not about thinking correctly. Loving others. Can that be enough? Well, the answer in Jesus in Matthew was a judgment day parable. The sheep goat judgment. Very, very famous one. And it is the big one. He specifies by saying, this is the final judgment. This is the judgment at the end of the age where all are gathered from the four corners of the universe. Yes, it is a rectangle of some kind. The four corners of the universe. And then the parable, which is hugely blown out to mean things it doesn't mean, simply raises the criterion of judgment and the criteria of entering heaven and the criteria of not entering heaven, whatever those things are. But the criteria is this. I was hungry and you fed me and this is to the sheep and I was thirsty you gave me to drink I was naked you clothed me I was sick you came to me I was in prison you visited me you, you know this passage and the sheep say to him Lord when did we ever see you in that condition we didn't see you hungry naked we don't know you Jesus and he says, you did that to a fellow human being. In fact, you did that to the lowest, to the least human being. You showed this kindness. Now, enter the kingdom. They didn't know him. There's no mention of faith in the whole passage of the sheep goat judgment. Salvation is a work, but it is a work of love. And it is a work of love that those who did it did not even know it was being received by God as proper worship. They didn't know that. What they knew is what we talked about yesterday, Doug. The transformed eye. They saw someone hungry and it hurt, so they gave their food. They saw someone naked and cold and it bothered them and they gave because that's what love is. It's, it's love. And it wouldn't have counted if it was spat out by an institution. It would not have counted if there was a machine we created that spat out food, drink, and clothing, needy, just come and push a button. It come, and good, we got the love out of it. We fixed it systematically, systemically. We've got, a, we've got a, a planet that solved the external signs of poverty. Good. And we've got no friendship, no character development, no love. What would it gain? A man if he gains the whole world and has a machine like that and has lost his soul. 
Well, I want to go to that. Um, I want to go to that Good Samaritan thing again. I want to visit that again. Is everybody familiar with the Good Samaritan parable? It's one of the great teachings. And you do know that an example was given in this. We talked about this last week. The parable was given as an answer to a question. The question was a question designed to pop the atmosphere, to spoil the atmosphere of what had just happened when someone came and said, Jesus, how do I attain eternal life? There's the question. How do I attain, attain eternal life? And Jesus says, what do you see in the scriptures when you read them that would give you the answer? And this Jewish leader says, love God with all my heart and love my neighbor as myself, quoting the book of Deuteronomy. And Jesus says, that's right. Do that, love God and love your neighbor and you shall live. So I'm right. Worry about love and let salvation take care of itself. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. Get busy. Loving God and loving neighbor, you'll live. You'll live. (laughs) I'm glad we live in grace and forgiveness. But then the leader said, who's my neighbor? Spoiling it all. And then he gives this answer, and he never answers the question, who's my neighbor in the Good Samaritan, right? At the end, he asks, now that I've told you this parable, who acted neighborly towards the man beaten and lying on the side of the road? He didn't say, who's my neighbor? He said, this is how a neighbor acts. This is neighborliness. This is what it is, again, to love others. He put it back on track. Now, I want to tell you about the Good Samaritan. I want to go into this guy. It's a parable, okay? So it's a schemata, it's a schematic set up to make a point or two. But I'd like to flesh it out. I'd like to make it a little bit of a story, a movie, let's say, in which for half an hour before you get to the Good Samaritan scene, there will have been a whole bunch of stuff about the Good Samaritan in the movie so you can size the guy up. And I'm going to shorten it real quick. I'm just going to tell you what's in that little half hour before we get to the scene. First of all, he's got a lot of doubts. Okay, He's a Samaritan. He's been told all his life by the Jews that they are the one and only true chosen people of God, that they worship the true God on the, in the true location, and that Samaritans are traitorous, half-breed scum who do not have the right religion and the right God. And he's got enough of that around him that he feels a lot of doubt about Samaritan religion. He doesn't know that he's in the right religion. He doesn't feel good about that. And on top of it, he has low self-esteem, especially when he travels through parts of Judea. He just feels the way people look at him. He opens his mouth, they hear the Samaritan accent, he knows they're looking down on him. And he spent his life feeling that way. Low self-esteem, wrong, (coughs) despised by others with whom I must do business. And then... Lying in his cot at night, prays to the God who never answers, doesn't do the miracles, doesn't heal his heart and his emotions, doesn't know whether he's even there. And so he can admit and say, if emotions, faith is a certain emotional exuberance to God, I don't have it. Then there's another scene 
where we're in the guy's home life. And sure enough, he's kind of like Peter. He's got a serious foul language problem. He talks like some pastors I know. <laughs> and he's got uh, addiction secrets. There's a scene that indicates, ooh, he's got some problems that he's coping with as far as addiction goes. And, and on top of it, there's a moment where he's hiding money from the tax collector. He hasn't been completely forthright with the revenue department. And then the kids, the kids draw forth in him the anger problem, which is a problem of males in general, and he's got a bad temper problem, especially with his kids. So at this point, sounds like a normal guy, right? Uh, sounds like a flawed, imperfect, normal person. Isn't sure about God, has moments of feeling good about God, a lot of doubts about God, very low self-esteem, emotional faith, nah, nothing. As far as moral life goes, nothing special. Nothing special morally. And has some issues. Addictive issues and habits and temperament issues. That's the kind of human being that walking down the street suddenly comes upon a person bleeding out, obviously just recently victimized by a brutal crime. And what does this Joe Average do? Feels basic compassion and immediately is inconvenienced by whatever business plans were had, whatever meetings were supposed to happen, drops all that and does something right there came out of him. Now what came out of him? Character. Character is this. Character is a habitual disposition that you have that is revealed in two general ways. Character is what you're like when nobody's looking. You're all alone. There's no accountability. That's one side of character. The other is what you're like when you don't have any time to put on a fake face. You don't have any time to put on a proper anything. There's a crisis that hits right away and your character shows something. Right comes right out. In the case of the Levite and the priest, what came out for all their moralizing and all their religious teaching is what came out under the stress of a crime was fear. Fear. I can think of no other emotion other than to contemplate a psychopathically cold heart. Fear and a blend of loathing. And they pass on by. But the Samaritan stopped. And as flawed as a human being, and as bad as religion he had, and as full of doubts that he had, and the fact is, objectively speaking, if you want to do this from a theological point of view, the Samaritans did have the wrong religion. That's why it's so interesting that Jesus took that example and said it doesn't matter because he loved he loved appropriately. He loved when the circumstances called forth. It didn't matter that he had a temper problem, that he's had foul language, that he has an addiction, that his faith is lousy. When a God moment happened, he loved. And that's the end of that little scene. And Jesus takes it and says, Here, this is a picture of all that God wants from you. And he could have quoted Micah chapter 6 when the theologian puts the question, what is it God wants from us? And he's given a sentence answer. This is what God wants from you. Number one, 
Be a little more humble in this universe, worm. You know nothing. So walk humbly before your Creator. And on this planet, you do justice and mercy when the situation calls for it. One situation will call out mercy for you. That's the Good Samaritan. The other one will call forth judgment. And those are the two ways we love. The two ways that make works into works of love is that they are some blend of mercy and justice. Because what's behind that is simple kindness, which is a translation for grace, that God is loving and kind, rich in mercy and forgiveness. And we are being called to be like that. My question is, should it change our view of the parable of the Good Samaritan if he's good only in the sense of that moment where his character came through? But he's not good. He's not a saint. He's not necessarily a role model for any of us in his day-to-day imperfection of his faith, error of his religion. That Those are not the things that mattered. But that a spirit of Christ-likeness, a spirit of compassion and care was made flesh was love working in action. Well, I'll close with this. We are called to be authentic imitations of Christ. And when we say faith without works is dead, just as a body without a spirit is dead in James, we, trained in the North American Protestant disease, constantly read the scripture as talking to us as individuals. No one ever read it that way. It's me. It's a book for me. It's a letter from God to me. It is our book to us, the people. The body that dies without the spirit is the church, is the community. Just as much as it is any individual life. And that it is the church who's claiming that God is love and that God lives among us has to put that into works. What good is it to say you have faith in God, to say you are the people of God, to say you are a community where God's spirit indwells and can be found and there are no works and they are the, as simple as are we growing in being genuine friends with one another? Are we growing in being genuinely gracious and forgiving of one another? Gospel of John put it this way, Let your good works so shine that people will see them and give glory to your God who's in heaven because they ain't going to see him any other way. So, that's my message. Let me just see how I did there. Oops.